please slow down I can't hear you when you talk out loud Hello everyone and welcome back to You Have to Watch This. I'm one of your hosts, Clayton Terry. And I'm your other host, Ted Ryan. Hello. This is the podcast where we recommend movies for one another to watch, and sometimes we have a guest over who also forces us to watch a movie, and the person that forced us to watch a movie this week was my brother, co-host of the Terry Talks podcast, Ryan Terry. Hello. Um, I'm the co-host of Terry Talks. You already said that. <laughs> and I also do, uh, I also run, you have to hear this. Yes, you uh, do. Which is the same, um same concept but for albums with my friend lucas yes we'll do more promotions at the end but all you need to know is ryan is a very busy guy and he has been kind enough to make time to record this podcast twice because this is the second time we are having this conversation yes sadly our audio from the first attempt was unsalvageable so we're back at it again hopefully we can have as fruitful a conversation i can see in ted's eyes that they're a little annoyed that we're doing this again. Yeah. <laughs> it sucks. It sucks having to go back and redo something that you were happy with um, because of technical errors. But we've made it this far without having to do it, so maybe we were lucky. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Last week we did, uh, we met with our friend our friend Brennan, and we our topic was peak genre film, and we discussed the movie Alien, Pirates of the Caribbean 2, and <laughs> City of God. And for this week's topic, we decided to go for the topic of experimental. And that could be in filmmaking techniques, in narrative presentation, in writing, uh, in style and quality. It could really go in any direction, as long as it has an experimental feeling or aspect to it. Uh, and I think we should start with Orion's film. Ryan, what movie did you have us watch this week? Uh, I picked the movie Synecdoche, New York, which is by Charlie Kaufman. Uh, it's his first, it's his directorial debut. Um, I saw this a year ago-ish, um, maybe a year and a half. I love it. I think it's an incredible movie. Tell us a little bit more about that. Why'd you uh, have us watch it? Maybe without going into spoilers just yet, but... What are your favorite aspects about this movie? Sure. Uh, so the movie is about this playwright and play director named Caden Cattard, who's uh, kind of a pitiful person. His life just starts to kind of crumble around him. He's in an unhappy marriage, or at least half of it's pretty unhappy. And um, he begins to write and direct a play in a studio that he fashions to look like Schenectady, New York, and has all the people in the play act out things that are actually going on in his life. And so the movie is kind of like, as events happen in the movie, Caden then puts them in his play. It's very... It's very weird and fascinating. And that's the most experimental part I find about this movie. Um, I guess it's not experimental in the way that Worlds of Tomorrow is, or it's definitely an auteur type thing. But in the narrative, in the form, in the expression, I don't think there's anything quite like it. 
I would certainly say this is just as experimental as World of Tomorrow, but we'll we'll get to that. Um, Ted, what did you think about Synecdoche? So overall, I think this film, I think it's a valuable thing to watch, but it was not enjoyable to watch. It was it was a difficult movie because it covers very serious and sometimes disgusting subject matter. I, I did not enjoy this film, but I'm glad I watched it. Um, I would echo similar sentiments. Uh, I really liked when it opened. Um, it opens very Char- Charlie Kaufman-like. It's almost like Marriage Story, but if you hated the two main characters and Adam Driver only had a few months to live, <laughs> um, which isn't really a spoiler, you find that out pretty much instantly in the story. As it kind of progresses, I found my enjoyment kind of falling pretty deep in that second act and it starts to pick up towards the third act and I'm like okay we're building to something we're building to something but then by the end it just kind of ends and I left feeling kind of unsatisfied um I I I can understand that but for me I'm kind of buy into that as the point and I, I don't like using that as, as an excuse for movies that are boring or are <laughs> unsatisfying because I think that's woven into the themes of these mo- this movie. I think the idea of being dissatisfied, being this unrelenting unhappiness yeah. <laughs> is the point of the movie and it wants to make you feel that way. And it's a very valuable thing to, for a movie to make you feel. Um, but you don't want to watch it all the time i maybe rewatched this movie once just so, with knowing how it, it actually functions to pick up on more little details that i didn't notice the first time mm-hmm. and then it just hits too hard for me to watch again i think i didn't know that i'm surprised you've rewatched it once <laughs> no i said i would oh okay i should have before doing this episode but <laughs> time yeah it's a long movie I think for me, one of my biggest faults with the film is that just by the very nature of its presentation and editing style, it has a very dreamlike feel where, you know, great spans of time can happen in a single cut. And that confusion is also present in the characters themselves. But I also feel as if there's a confusion in some of the themes. And I feel as if there's a lot of questions that it poses but the film i don't really feel like does justice exploring to the fullest and it feels as if it has a lot to say but it rambles almost do you think we could go into spoilers and kind of dive more deep into that because i have one specific example that i'd really like to go into in terms of themes i i think so i think this is a hard film to discuss without going into spoilers yeah so i think we can move into spoilers yeah so i talked about this last time we recorded that no one will ever hear but (laughs) the film brings up the idea that maybe caden is a homosexual and or somewhere on the gender spectrum his daughter has forces caden to say like i'm a homosexual who likes to have gay sex with my boyfriend or something and he like is forced to say that while the daughter's on her deathbed through tears. Um, And that's not really explained why that happens. Um, 
it's pretty clear that her mother, Caden's uh, ex-wife, is uh, gay in some way, at least lesbian or bi or something. And then later on, when Caden's with another character, he brings up that, oh, I feel like I could have done this. If I could do this all again, maybe I would do it as a woman because I feel like maybe I'd just be better at it. And the person's just like, huh, okay. And it's like, those are themes that whole movies have been made about. And this, I don't think it earns the right to be able to be like, we're just going to bring it up in passing. It's just one of the many things that we're going to talk about in this movie. We also talked about this last time. So I'm trying to recollect the the argument I used last time. Um, I think the movie main theme and the main idea of the movie is about selfishness and about how you only really view the world through your own lens you're your main character and to me the film uses gender and um just sexual orientation to kind of make Caden seem more selfish or make Caden seem more unempathetic because he's a fairly misogynistic character, but but he's also the he's, he would kind of like to be submissive, and so his idea of being submissive is being more feminine. Mm-hmm. And I think that comes when he's acting out the maid scenes when he's pretending to be uh, his wife's maid. It's a very bizarre thing. But I think it's supposed to say more about the character than it is about gender roles in general, or how 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 gender roles manifest in this character who's so selfish mm-hmm. or um, so uh, unempathetic. I think one fault that I have with the inclusion of his theme of questioning his gender identity is that I don't know if it. I don't know if I fully believe that it ties into his like narcissistic kind of um, presentation and worldview. Like I think, I think that part of his character does not, it feels artificially placed within the plot. And I feel like it doesn't interact well or that much at all with the other parts of this machine that makes up the film. You know, I feel like it's like, there's a lot of themes here and a lot of ideas here and there's a lot of ideas elsewhere, but they're not talking to each other. That's fair. I, I do think when I watch the movie, the, the, the theme of like self-obsession certainly protrudes more than anything else. That's why we talked about this last time. There's <laughs> the one scene that I really like where he says, everyone here is the main character at the funeral and then he proceeds to act out that scene in his play and the idea of like how it kind of means nothing to him and like there is that the way that selfishness manifests is interesting i do think the gender thing matters for the maid scene yeah. i think um that's the culmination of that subplot um, although admittedly that's the section of the film that I find most not uninteresting. Uh, it's the most meandering to me. I, I like it much more when it's doing, when it's focusing on the play and how Caden interacts with the play. 
uh, those are my favorite parts. Continuing yeah. on that, I think the the way the play plays into the narrative was probably like the most compelling aspect of the story for me, where we see him, you know, constantly regurgitate the events of his life and the characters in his life and see how that comes onto the stage or this, not so much a stage, but this like artificial world that he's created. And I found that like, the way those scenes were redone was like fascinating and like really compelling in like the way how his worldview and view of events like seeps into the work and then how that, how him perceiving those enacted events like makes him reevaluate himself and his place in those events. And most notably, I loved the actor that was playing himself in that play and his strange relationship camaraderie with that actor mm-hmm. larry david <laughs> yeah the the larry david look-alike i thought when he was in the story i think that's when i was most engaged when he had his his shadow to follow him i think i think that's probably the most interesting part of the movie to me as well is play thing and i knew the plot going in i knew that synopsis going in and so i was kind of shocked that like him starting his own the play of his own life is like the hour mark. There's a lot of stuff that happens before then. Um, but seeing how it all manifests is very interesting to me. Seeing how he sees his world and how he wishes his world was. I think that's what the play sections are about. And uh, at some point you can't tell what's the play and what's real life. Mm-hmm which is really cool when, when the, the direct to me, when the director is able to augment your idea of reality to such a degree that you don't know what's happening is real and what's happening is made up. That's cool. That's really cool. And, um, I think this movie achieves that in spades. And if that's what, uh, if that sounds interesting to you, then I think this could be a really effective piece, a really effective narrative. Uh, but I understand Ethan was watching it. I was watching this Ethan and he, he was like half falling asleep <laughs> because he was, he was really tired and he was like, I was like, do you want me to restart it or watch it our day? And he was like, no, that's probably the best way to watch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But like, I think you could say that and it not being offended, offensive towards the movie, you know? Yeah, maybe, maybe it is. <laughs> um, I think, like, to return to the discussion that about, like, that one line where it's, like, everyone's a main character, right? That really annoyed me that, like, he says that and then they just kind of reenact that scene in the play. But our conversations have made me realize, like, that's the point. Just because he says that aloud doesn't necessarily mean that he truly internalizes that. So, like, the audience, we understand that to be true but Caden doesn't understand that to be true yet. And I think I think you're right Ryan that the point of the movie is a window into his selfishness that doesn't mean it's not hard to watch. I'm not necessarily saying you're arguing it is easy to watch considering falling asleep may be the best way to watch it, but like <laughs> um I do think it plays into that ability to enjoy and rewatch the piece. It's a fairly punishing movie to watch yeah um so i i think 
that the reasons I love it might be another of the reasons why another person might dislike it. And I think, well, also, I think it's a fairly universal film in the sense of like when he says everyone's a main character, you, we all know that we're the main character of our stories, but it's very hard for us to imagine someone else as the main character of their own story. Yeah, you're right. No matter how empathetic you are, you're probably not able to fully recognize any other person as a complex as you are. Like some people can probably get closer than others. Like almost anyone could probably get closer than Caden can, but like that's an impossible task. And I think that narrative film in a lot of ways is an attempt to see someone else as the main character. And I think that's why I find film so valuable, especially compared to other art forms where it's harder to do that. Not to say it's definitive, it's the Gusamtuk's first or whatever, but uh, it's just the way that narrative film is structured, it's trying to get you into the life, it's trying to buy you into the life of someone else. And that's why I think it's so valuable is because it's the closest... I mean, watching Schindler's List is the closest I'll ever get to being someone in the Holocaust or seeing someone in the Holocaust live through that. Yeah. And I think that's a very powerful thing that film can do that no other art form can. I think think other art forms can. Like I think about you, you bring up the example of the Holocaust and I think Ellie Wiesel's Night brings me pretty close. I think... It's just hard to compare sometimes because you do have that extra, that added visual and audio component with film. But I think just art in general, the point is to bring you into other people's shoes, you know? Like, I I wasn't an eighth grade girl in 2018, but eighth grade made me empathize with that, you know? I didn't grow up black and gay in the 90s in Miami, but Moonlight showed me what a portion of what that's like. I think you're totally right with that and this shows this is Caden trying to learn that um through the very art that we learn it from ourselves you're right I think to me the difference is we generally view the camera as objective although it's anything but you know it's hard to see through the lens of a camera and say this this is someone's vision of what I'm seeing I think with both, I think with books or other forms of narrative art, uh, there is the subjectivity is more obvious, whereas with film, it's less obvious. Yeah, does that make sense? Maybe I think like we may not view characters as objective, but like you're saying, we definitely view the camera as objective, and that isn't necessarily true. I mean, it's not true in this movie. Oh yeah, definitely. The camera's trying to trick you. Mm-hmm. The camera's trying to. The camera is almost a character. In and of itself, I feel like the camera is always judging Caden, <laughs> which is which is funny, which is funny to discuss in the same breath as Man with a Movie Camera, where the attempt is the camera being as objective as possible. Mm-hmm. Well, should we move on to Man with a Movie Camera? I have a couple points that I wanted to make. <laughs> yeah, go for it. That I'll just spit out real quickly. Is that like? We talk about the enjoyment of Synecdoche, and 
I don't think it was meant to be enjoyed. Like, you hear Charlie Kaufman talk that he wanted to make an existential horror movie. And if you recognize that was his goal, you realize how effective of a film he made. Because you have these characters that are constantly surrounded by their fear of death. You have Caden with as many ailments. You have Hazel's house is always on fire in the movie. And that's her fear. Um, And that's her ultimate demise. It's like smoke inhalation. I love that. I think that's such a funny, interesting visual metaphor. Mm -hmm. Funny in a dark way. Like the fact that every time they're in her house, it's just burning. Yeah. (laughs) And no one acknowledges it. Well, no, I think they, they do acknowledge it, but it's like never, it's like, oh, there's fire over there. It's like, yeah, <laughs> like, here's a pillow, you know? Yeah, they just move on. I think that's a really effective metaphor, too, in the sense of, like, the world is burning around them and they just don't notice. <laughs> they just don't care. Yeah. That's really interesting. Like, so many bad things can happen in their life, life and yet they're just floating by. Mm-hmm. And another thing is, like, it, we talked about this, but it starts so real with the nature of the dialogue. Like, namely, you have people talking over one another. Then it kind of transitions to this psychosis. And because it started so real, it makes that feeling even more jarring and stressful, which, again, plays into the idea like, oh, if he was going for this to be unenjoyable, like, he did it really well in terms of, like, filmmaking techniques. And I also think to speak to the filmmaking techniques... The use of editing is so confusing, it almost removes the present from the movie. And I think one theme that we'll see in this and World of Tomorrow is how do you get an audience to like truly appreciate their present and the way this film chooses to do it, which may be one of the most effective ways to do it, is it removes the present entirely from the movie. Like It feels like you are constantly living through Caden's memories or his future undoing. It never feels like you are living through Caden's today. So the, I love, that's that's what I find so interesting about the writing and about the directing. Um, I didn't even notice this until I watched the analysis video from uh, Your Movie Sucks, <laughs> following up, where he, uh, you watch the opening scene, and it's like he pulls the newspaper up, and it says whatever date, and then he pulls the milk carton up, and the expiration date is does not line up with the date on the newspaper. And then they're driving, and you hear someone say the date on the radio, and it's not the same date as it's on the newspaper. It's like a month later. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so these little details are all over the film where you can tell that time is not linear. They're, they just jump around. and it's Or not linear, sorry. It's linear, but it's not obvious. Like, you don't know if it's a day, a week, a month, a year. You don't know how much time passes in this movie. It's, it's uh it's crazy yeah it, like jumps all around it's linear but it's gonna skip like portions in a way a normal movie wouldn't yeah i like last time i mentioned the scene where he says like i don't remember the age of the daughter but she's he says her age and he's like she's only five and then the the other character the mistress is like she's 11 now yeah and like Caden doesn't feel that change we don't feel that change it, it, we don't even like it doesn't process in our mind that the scene what 30 minutes ago and the scene now is six years away mm-hmm. that's really effective that's a really effective way of storytelling at least in the story that is trying to tell absolutely 
Ted, do you have any closing thoughts on Synecdoche before we move on to uh, Man with a Movie Camera? All great art challenges the viewers, and I think this film succeeds in doing so. However, I think I would have appreciated the film more going in knowing what to expect. Uh, This is not a casual watch. Um, And I think through these conversations and dialogues of the film, I think my memory of the film has improved in time, but I don't know if I'm ever going to rewatch this. So you have to watch this question mark. You have to watch this once. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) I probably would have, this isn't where you should start with Charlie Kaufman. So I apologize. Um, (laughs) I think that Eternal Sunshine is the best place to start. Yeah, yeah. Or, uh, or being John Malkovich, which is his first movie, but still, it's uh, I think those movies are much more because at least in Eternal Sunshine, there's the advantage of like, oh, this is all going on in his mind. This is memory. So like when all the crazy stuff happens, there's the very clear this is reality, and then this is not reality. Yeah. That, that divide is very obvious in the movie, whereas in this movie, it's not obvious at all. It's it's Charlie Kaufman with no one telling him no. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, uh, he doesn't hold back. And maybe in a film where he does hold back, it would have been a better start. Definitely. So I think with that, we'll move on to Ted's movie, Man with a Movie Camera. Ted, why don't you tell us a little bit about the movie you had us watch? So, my film is the 1929 film Man with a Movie Camera by Mikhail Kaufman. Uh, I watched this film as part of a art history class about two years ago, and it really blew me away. I really love this film. And what the film is, is that it is an ex- exploration of the new film media, the birth of cinema and and the mechanical movements that act as the beating heart of cinema. It's an exploration into editing and presentation and speed and sound, or not so much sound, but, you know, life of the urban world and the mechanized, industrialized world. It, this is an ambitious film and really phenomenal. It doesn't so much have a plot, So there's not really a discussion that much to be had there, but I really enjoy this film. What did you, Clayton, think of this film? Yeah, um, it's very different. So like you said, there's not really a plot to appreciate, but what I can appreciate is the filmmaking techniques and it's very easy to do so. The love for movie making and the, the love for the act of making an image move is so present in this movie. And they, for the time, really push the boundaries as to what's capable. We'll dive into all the different things they started maybe a bit later, like uh, editing techniques and whatnot. But just as like a lesson in the history of film, I think this is an essential entry into that. I saw this for my film history class. So uh, <laughs> I lucked out. There you go. I didn't need to find it. But um, <laughs> I loved it. Uh, I thought I loved it as a filmmaker. As someone who um, can watch this and just see all of the effects and the editing styles and the shot techniques and the ideas take hold and manifest in a film 
And the, for really the first film that did anything like this, the film is a presentation of how cool film is yeah. and how cool <laughs> the camera is. And knowing that before going in, I think is important um, and directly tied to the enjoyment of the movie. The fact that they're watching this, the first scene in the movie is how the theater that they're watching the movie and works because it's the theater that the film was first shown in. Yeah. That's cool. That's weird. And it's like, the idea is like this art form is new and it has so much to say and we can so, we can say so much with it. How do we say it? And then it shows you how we can say all these things. Yeah. It uses, it uses the camera as a lens into modern life for Russia in the thirties. Definitely. And I'd love to run through a list of all the different tech camera techniques it invented basically. So some of these include double exposure, fast motion, slow motion, freeze frames, jump cuts, split screens, Dutch angles, extreme close-ups, tracking shots, backwards footage, and stop motion animation. The film introduced audiences to all of that. All of that. Like, you look at the idea of The Birth of a Nation being the first movie to kind of teach audiences the power of editing you have a man climbing up a ladder uh going into a window and then it cuts and it shows the other side of the window and your brain makes that connection that's the same man um that movie's horrible and racist but it did that for filmmaking you have citizen kane using all those techniques to say oh we can tell a really compelling narrative just in terms of pure quantity of contribution i think very few films can top man with a movie camera and i think what's so successful about the way this film uses these techniques is that you know it's almost like a tutorial of like the power of film and the camera itself the power of the film reel Mm -hmm. and you know what i love about this era in the like the early 20s and 30s in media in comics and film in the beginning steps of animation is that there's an examination of these new art forms, you know, mm-hmm. and it by directly exposing the artifice of the product, you you're you're able to do so much more and add a new layer of like thought and feeling to the presentation because not only are you watching the film, you're watching the you're analyzing the structure of the film itself while you're participating in it. It's it's really cool as well how the film like it shows everyone waking up in the morning. It shows um, it's kind of a presentation of like all these new industrial technologies coming to Russia, and most of the people at the time don't know how these things work. So the camera's going to show you how they work. Yeah, and it's kind of a celebration. It's not propaganda in any sense of the word, but they were paid by the Russian government to make the movie. And it's kind of the movie saying, this is what, how far Russia has come technologically. Yeah, it's the beauty in the mundane of the everyday life, you know? Yeah, yeah, and, and it really relishes in that. It really wants you to think about these normal things in everyday life in a new light. And the new light is the camera. 
we've never had this before. We've never been able to see ourselves in the <laughs> same way that a film camera is able to make us do. And I really appreciate the almost documentarian act, uh, you know, the almost documentary style of filmmaking that the the film participates in being able to see footage from nearly a hundred years ago and be like so up close and so personal where we get so intimate with so many figures for just brief glimpses of time. And my imagination like explodes with like, who is that person? Who, who's this person playing volleyball? Who is this person assembling the film? Uh, You know, it's like, I'm, I'm so glad that we have media from so long ago and such great quality that we can still participate in, you know, like this, I love being able to participate in a seminal moment in a history of an art form, mm-hmm. like in this film. Yeah, I think like, it almost makes me sad, like how seminal this was and how seminal the things were to come because you look at like, this came out in the late 20s, early 30s. So 20 years later, they get Citizen Kane and then 30 years after that they get Star Wars you know and then 50 years after Star Wars we're still getting Star Wars so I think the 50 years between Man with a Movie Camera and A New Hope is a much more interesting time for filmmaking than the 50 years between A New Hope and Rise of Skywalker you know what I mean we talked about this last time, and um, I, I see, I see the, uh, I see the point. I, I, I see that, um, you know, certainly last Star Wars movie wasn't good, <laughs> but uh, I think that it's not that film isn't evolving. It's that the techniques in which film, the ways and the techniques in which film is evolving, aren't the most obvious anymore. Um, I think if you go into experimental film, short narratives, uh, non-narrative film, which is a whole other can of worms, uh, or modern indie films like A24, I think they are doing things to push narratives and aesthetics and drive genres to places where they've never been. Uh, Synecdoche is a great example. Yeah. That movie came out in, uh, I got the Wikipedia page here, hold on, 2008. It's not that old. You know, I think of movies like uh, Hereditary or Tree of Life, or um, I don't want to say a Lars von Trier film because I hate him, but <laughs> Correct. just in general, film isn't, film is evolving. It's just not being evolved by major label studios who, let's be honest, would net a big loss <laughs> from uh, without focus testing it first. And I think I came across this one tweet recently that really has embedded itself in my brain recently, but the media and art that we consume that will really matter and push boundaries is not going to be made by corporations. It's going to be made by us and our peers, you know? And I think I don't see this, even though this was, this movie was funded by the Russian government or Soviet government, um, it still feels very individualistic and a personal project, a personal affirmation of love. And I think it'll always be the individual pushing or the individual and the small collective 
pushing the boundary and the rather than the mega blockbuster. Yeah, definitely. A24 has a lot more to say about where film's going than Disney does right now. Disney's literally just going back and remaking their old movies, <laughs> you know. And I don't know. Um, I mean, when I I don't uh, blame it's hard when you get offered to make a Star Wars movie to say no. Especially when you look at the paycheck. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I don't necessarily blame entirely someone like J.J. Abrams for wanting to take a stab at Star Wars. Uh, I do blame larger corporations for the kind of the mundanity of modern film, modern mainstream film. Like, yeah, I love the Marvel movies, but I'd like to get something that wasn't just Marvel. Uh, I think the only mainstream directors who are able to ex- expand o- off of that platel- platform, I can't speak, platform, <laughs> is uh, Christopher Nolan. I think he's a great example. Yeah, uh, true. And I think he likes to do this thing. I've gotten in arguments with Ethan about this. I think he likes to do this thing in studios where it's like, one for you, one for me. You make, <laughs> you let me make Dark Knight Rise, or you... I make Dark Knight Rises, you like me make Interstellar. Yeah. I, I think that's, um, and I think that's, I mean, now he can pretty much do whatever he wants and guarantee seats, and there's not an issue. But I do think that there is a certain amount of prestige and a certain amount of competence you need as a filmmaker for a big studio to give you a lot of money to do something prob- that probably won't make them a lot of money compared to spider-man far from home this isn't to make fun of spider-man far from home i think it's possible to enjoy those movies and still be a cinephile exactly like i think ideal world is we get both right like we get the best of the best in terms of big budget movies which is namely marvel maybe the harry potter movies chris nolan movies last jedi in my opinion and we get real money and eyes and thought and care Uh, before after and during the production of like a24 movies you know i think movies like moonlight and eighth grade should be mandatory viewing for just like every person on the planet i think movies like hereditary like you mentioned and midsummer and the witch and lighthouse are like pushing that genre leaps and bounds ahead of what the early 2000s was able to do for horror it's just ideal world we get both like we can have the fact that we're still having star wars but also i want people to put money towards and care towards these smaller more artistic movies and i want people to see them which i don't know it's kind of it seems like people are kind of yearning for original stuff nowadays but for a while it was hard i think with this past year 2019 wrapping up i think we are seeing that where audiences general audiences are you know, looking for that demand and they're looking for smaller films and most notably like foreign films that offer new and fresh perspectives off the top of my head. I'm thinking of the, the farewell and parasite and films of that caliber. Yeah. And, um, knives out like original and engaging films. And that movie is incredibly fun. (laughs) Yes. Part of the disappointing thing is movies only get buzz by the whim of the Oscars. Yeah. When they, like these indie movies really get buzz 
when the Oscars decide this one's worthy. And, you know, I don't think, I think certain people in my life would be less interested to see Parasite if it didn't win Best Picture or if it wasn't nominated. And I think that's um, something being fixed. I don't think the Oscars had the same amount of respect as they used to. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's a good thing. It's a good thing regardless that these films are getting more recognition than ever. You know, if you were a small-time filmmaker in the 70s when the Oscars were mainly mainstream, uh, which I don't exactly object to necessarily, or at least on paper, but like, then what do you do? How do you make films? How do you get a studio to buy into your project? I don't know. It's hard. Uh, Pre-Deer Hunter. Yeah. It's hard. It's just like, I'm grateful for the Oscars in the sense that like, I never would have watched Honeyland or Hair Love if it wasn't for the Oscars saying like, hey, check these movies out. We just need more avenues for that to be said. More avenues to be like, these are movies worth your time. Remember when the Oscars released their own Oscars predictions? Yeah, and it was like, a lot of them ended up being correct. So people were like, did you just accidentally release like the answers? Like it was, (laughs) I mean, it was kind of obvious who was going to win all the acting ones, but it was like (laughs) Renee Zellweger was on there, Brad Pitt. Lord Dern, blah, blah, blah. So it was weird. They just want to play along. (laughs) We don't know. We're figuring it out. (laughs) Well, we've moved from man with a movie camera to a very broad conversation about film today. So to dial it back in, any closing thoughts for man with a movie camera before we kind of move on? I'll start with you, Ted, since it was your movie. I think everyone should watch this film. I think it's... I think it's very enjoyable. It's very engaging. It has a very playful energy, which brings a lot of fun to the film. There are, I, you know, I rewatched it recently for the podcast, but even still, there are some images from, you know, the first time I watched it two or three years ago that I don't think I'll ever forget. And there's some sequences that just the sheer editing alone elevates the film to another level in my mind. And... Yeah, I think it's it's a great film. It's I have no problems with it. I I love this film. Ryan, how about you? I think this film is necessary viewing for anyone even slightly interested in the media. Um, I think it says a lot about where films were and what films would become. And I think since you mentioned we've gotten to a little broader of a conversation. I think this film invites conversations like that through a modern lens, uh, almost demands them (laughs) in a way that I'm sure the filmmakers weren't expecting it to. Yeah, Uh, absolutely. Because because I think it's one of the most notable non-narrative films, which is interesting for me because I'd say of the limited short films that I have released, they're Mm non-narrative. Um, and I think it's a style of filmmaking that should be celebrated more. And uh, because the idea of film as art, as an art piece, as a moving time-based picture, is uh, not um, one in the public consciousness. And I think it uh, should be. I could see this movie, I, I removing it from the context of how it was made, I could see this movie on a gallery floor and then 
medium would write articles about its profoundness. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I think it's incredible for what it was able to do, and it's still fun to watch. Definitely. I don't think I have anything to add that you guys didn't already put very articulately. So with that said, I think it's time to move on to my movie. So the movie I had you both watch is the 2015 short film World of Tomorrow. The director is Don Hertzfeld, and the IMDb plot summary is a little girl is taken on a mind-bending tour of her distant future. I would add to that plot summary by her clone. (laughs) So the story essentially follows Emily Prime and... A clone of Emily from the future comes to show Emily around the future, Emily Prime around the future. And the film has a lot to say about sci-fi tropes and valuing the present and memory and childhood. But first, I'd like to get the thoughts from you both. Ryan, why don't we start with you? How do you feel about Don Hertzfeld and his movie World of Tomorrow? This is probably my favorite short film. I've ever seen. I'm new to the work of Don Hertzfeld. I've seen this, Meeting of Life, and Billy's Balloon. And, and uh, the Simpsons Billy's intro. <laughs> what? The Simpsons oh, intro. the Simpsons intro. You're right. It's couch gag. Mm-hmm. One of the best Simpsons couch gags ever. But um, I think that he is a rare filmmaker in his style, in his technical abilities, and in how popular his films have become, given how outlandish they seem and how auteur-y is, uh, I think that this film is able to say so much in its 15-minute span. And none of it feels preachy. None of it feels um, like too... How do I phrase this? None of it seems uh, preachy or like he's banging it over your head he just presents a world to you and then drops you back into your world and then the movie ends Mm -hmm. it's a lens into his the world that he constructs and it is very effective in that and the way he shows that world is very effective and it's funny it is yeah yeah it's profound and funny (laughs) so i think um yeah, it's my favorite short film. Ted, what are your thoughts? I don't know if I liked it as much as Ryan, but I really enjoyed this film. I thought it was really fun. It's very funny. Uh, and coming from an illustration background, I found it very visually engaging, where we frequently say in the major that like the simpler your art style is, the harder it is to make it look good or to have it pull it off. And I think, like, the way the characters are animated and the kind of the line art that has a, like, slight boil to it, so it kind of has, like, a wiggly quality to it is really charming. And it's not overdone at any point. And I think, like, the way that, like, each strange, bizarro future scene that is shown has, like, a slightly different aesthetic to it really creates a interesting like exploration of movement and like color and shape that is really compelling and i think you know aided with like the fantastic dialogue um i I found this film very compelling 
Definitely. I am a huge fan of the animation, but I think what ultimately does it for me is the themes this film plays with. So it plays with the idea of it being easy to get lost in memory. Um, I guess we'll move into spoilers because there's not really... It's a 17-minute movie, so it's hard to spoil stuff, but Emily ultimately goes back to Emily Prime so that she can have a memory copied from this original Emily of her childhood that we don't really see, but she's just like, it's very meaningful to me. And that idea of it being easy to get lost in memories, to paraphrase an actual quote from the movie. And I appreciate how this film kind of articulates that longing and sadness are what make us human. And that that connection to our past, to our memories, to the people here and not here is what won me over the first time and every time I continue to rewatch this movie. It is also my favorite short film of all time of the limited amount I've seen, but I think it's worthy of that title. This film actually got me to start. It's my biggest, like, since I've started doing art-based, like, paper art, digital art, it's been um, a big inspiration to me, the way he draws, particularly his line work. I find very fascinating and uh, vivid. It's almost representational. (laughs) It's not, it's very, um, there's this one shot that I think is my favorite shot of the whole, of one of my favorite shots in the animated film, where it's uh, Emily, the clone, and the person that she falls in love with on like this half-constructed bridge staring out into this like planet's abyss uh i love it i think it's beautiful and the way that he's such a simple artist Mm -hmm. um but it's very effective and it works really well with the stories he's trying to tell if it was any more realistic it probably wouldn't be as effective in my opinion definitely i no longer fall in love with rocks (laughs) It's my favorite subplot, how she keeps falling in love with inanimate objects. (laughs) I think it's great. I think the subplot that I found most compelling was the section where in which there is this art gallery, art museum in the future. And there's this one exhibit where there's a, a young male baby who's had their mind or brain removed or something like that. And they spend their entire life in this test tube growing up in front of this uh, museum-going crowd. And how over time, this emotionless, somewhat featureless person becomes the sole companion to these lonely people. And I found that really touching and fascinating as almost like a statement of like, you know... As artists, we all put a bit of ourselves into the work that we do. And this is almost as if, you know, once it's out of your hand, like something can have a life of its own. Yeah, a literal manifestation of that. It's It's a hard film. For me, it's hard to talk about specifically because I love so much of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love the process. I love that he 
recorded his niece playing for like an hour or two mm-hmm. and then just wrote this script around whatever she said i think that's but i assume he had beats beforehand but yeah. just like the way that she she like emily emily's like uh saying something like don't get lost in memories and then the emily prime is like i drew a triangle <laughs> <laughs> she's just drawing shit in the air it's it's a very um it doesn't get bogged down in its own material and it knows how to tell an effective story and a compelling story that's relatable. I love the clone subplot, like you mentioned. I think it's a clone. I think it's a clone without consciousness. Yeah. Um, and then another one that I find very interesting is how the earth is dying and the people, poor, people who are more poor who can't go to uh outer worlds are teleporting but the teleportation doesn't work properly so they just end up in the middle of space yeah and just floating like Mm -hmm. that's soul crushing and the way it's said so objectively it's it's a fascinating film and the way it explores what it means to be human and the effects that memory has on what makes us human is a very compelling one it's going over a lot of like deep difficult ideas and themes but because of the short runtime and even more importantly the simple animation there's a levity to it all you know it doesn't feel draining the same way synecdoche does in (laughs) to bring it back and it feels very sincere rather than sarcastic yeah it's not cynical in any way really any closing remarks ted as an illustration major, uh, animation and illustration have always had a very intertwined history as they both really emerged as art forms in like the commercial field at the same time. This film really made me want to explore more of animation's history and explore more of what it has to offer. And this combined with um, Gertie the Dinosaur, which I watched recently yes, I love Gertie by the Dinosaur. Windsor McKay, I... I loved it, and that's arguably the first animated film. And yeah, I I feel like this film has opened my eyes up to the larger possibilities of the form beyond, you know, like Disney and uh, Ghibli films. Mm -hmm. And I hope that we can revisit the animation subgenre topic uh, for the podcast moving forward. Definitely. Um, We've done animation a couple times, but we are definitely just scratching the surface, I would say. Definitely. My closing thoughts, I would just end with a quote from World of Tomorrow, because I think anything that film has to say, it says more articulately than I could. Um, So this is a quote from the older Emily, the clone, that I think about a lot. Do not lose time on daily trivialities. Do not dwell on petty detail. For all of these things melt away and drift apart within the obscure traffic of time. Live well and live broadly. You are alive and living now, and now is the envy of all the dead. On that note, Ryan, thank you so much for recording this conversation a second time with us. <laughs> thank you for having me twice. <laughs> You're welcome. You're the only guest to appear twice and be heard once. <laughs> it's an honor. Ryan, I as we talked about, you're a busy guy. Where can people find all this stuff that keeps you busy? Oh, God. Uh, 
I'm a, I'm a filmmaker. I have, I have uploaded my films to YouTube, although probably, I don't know if they'll swap to Vimeo. Um, depends on if there's any demand. I know a lot of modern, modern filmmaker, filmmakers use Vimeo. Mm-hmm. Um, I also am the host of You Have to Hear This, which is uh, a ripoff of this show. <laughs> I host it with my friend uh, and co-host Lucas. We do a live broadcasting of the show on WCBF 88.9 Fredonia Radio. Um, shout out to Fredonia Radio Systems, the club. Fantastic. <laughs> Allow me to do that and then take the um, recording home, edit it, upload it as podcasts. It's live Mondays at 9 and then uh, uploaded Tuesdays at 12. And the broadcastings are a week ahead of the uploads on uh, Spotify and all streaming platforms. And I'm also in a band called Beach Tower. I'm the lead guitarist and one of the main songwriters. Uh, It's been an absolute blast. We're mainly active in Fredonia and Buffalo. and I don't know, we should be recording soon. I don't know how much I'm allowed to say about my manager <laughs> getting mad at me. But okay. it's uh, it's an incredible, been an incredible experience. And follow, if you're interested, follow some of my musical escapades too, because I should be doing some more stuff soon, which I'm very excited for. Awesome. We'll link to all of that in the show notes. And also, you got a little taste of Beach Tower, because as you may have noticed, our intro song was different. Ryan, what was that name of that song that you had us do for the intro? That was coming around. Uh, we played it live for um, this basement gig place called North Pole Strip Club. Not a real strip club. They just <laughs> called that. Uh, it was an incredible experience. It was a live interview type thing. Um, yeah, love it there. We just played there recently, and it was crazy. I kicked my guitar into a wall. I didn't think I had, it was like $80 of repairs. Oh, wait, like on accident? No. (laughs) So I kicked, so the guitar, my strap locks, I have this crazy feedback solo where I'm like punching my guitar and to get as much feedback from it as possible. My strap locks came undone. My guitar just fell off my body and I was like, the show is still going. I need to make this interesting. So I kicked it into a wall. Oh my God. I spent $80 on repairs. Don't tell mom that. (laughs) It's fine now. She listens to this. Oh, no. (laughs) Uh, It's fine now, but it was an incredible experience. Oh, also Terry Talks Podcast. Listen to that. You get plugged that enough, but (laughs) I'm on that too. Hell yeah. I can't wait to listen to some of your music and your podcast. I haven't had the chance yet, but I'll definitely try and check it out soon. It's Uh, a lot of fun. We've been having my bandmates on recently cool you can find my work uh all my artwork at on my instagram account at ted ryan art there you can find the podcast art for this podcast that you're listening to right now uh you can find some comics that i'm working on and some ongoing projects that i have in the works i recently had the pleasure to interview a good friend of mine jackie davis of the webcomic underpants and overbites for our other podcast stories worth sharing yeah i had a blast recording that conversation and i think it's probably my favorite podcast content that i've created so far Mm -hmm. and we had a really great talk about 
mental health and making comics and the value of being sincere to a anonymous audience online and so on and so forth. We covered a lot of ground. That was a great conversation that I was privy to get to hang out in the booth for. Um, I love Jackie. I'm really grateful that we got to share that with the world. All my other projects have been mentioned by you guys, but I host the Terry Talks podcast where we talk about movies, much like this one. Um, We just did an episode of Favorite Art from the 2010s, and that is one of my favorite pieces of podcast content I've been lucky enough to create. Just getting to sit down with a bunch of people and talk about everything from Hamilton to Steven Universe to you name it. Um, It was really great to see all the art that touched us during the 2010s. And as Ted mentioned, stories we're sharing, different hosts interviewed different guests that they find interesting because everyone has stories we're sharing. Intro song this week was Come Around by Beach Tower. Again, check them out in the comments. I want to thank Ryan again for being on. And we will now say our movies for next week. I almost forgot. <laughs> right. Uh, yes. So I believe we decided on... The topic of magical or enchanting films. Yes, magical, mystical, Mr. Mistopheles. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that joke is just as funny the second time <laughs> making it. Let it. Let the record be. Let, let the record be stated that uh, it uh, had the same reaction <laughs> the first <laughs> the time. First time. Uh, and so the film that I'm going to have you watch for next week is going to be the last black man in San Francisco. This is a film that came out last year, and I watched it recently, and it blew me away. I am so excited to get to talk about this movie. It's maybe a new favorite. It's definitely a new favorite film of mine. I can't wait to watch it with you. Yes, this is. Um, it's been a while since I've been this excited to dive into either of our movies, so I'm really happy that you're recommending this. Uh, for Magical, I'll be recommending one of my favorite films from 2016, La La Land. I love Damien Chazelle and I love La La Land and that movie captures a real magic that you don't see um, because you don't really see these kind of musicals anymore Um, and I'm really delighted that I'm going to get to share it with you and I'm excited to talk about it. Definitely. I can't wait. I love La La Land. It's probably my favorite musical ever. I think it's incredible. (laughs) Not to get your hopes up too high. It's up there. Man, 2016 was such a good year for movies because that was Moonlight, La La Land, Arrival, Rogue One. What else was that year? Oh, God. Hold on. Uh, 2016 movies. It was also a great year for music, if I remember correctly. Teens of Denial, Blonde. Yeah. Uh, a Moonshade Pool by Radiohead, which matters to me. Uh, Manchester <laughs> by the Sea, Zootopia, Rogue One, uh, Hell or High Water, Doctor Strange, Nice Guys. There we go. Civil War. Yes, Civil War. (laughs) Well. Batman v Superman. Amazing. Gotta give a round of applause for that one. The first Fantastic Beast movie. (laughs) Suicide Squad. (laughs) Knocking them right out of the park. Boom. Great year, great year. (laughs) Well, we talked about next week's movies. We talked about all of the intro and outro stuff and we talked about 2016 so i think it's time that we end this podcast for a second time <laughs> right uh hopefully you won't hear this conversation again for a third time <laughs> you can really tell that this is the second time <laughs> right. especially towards the end now <laughs> yeah we're loose we're having fun <laughs> thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next time bye